0: It's good to see you today, and uh, the reason we sang Crown Him with Many Crowns is because today is Ascension Day. It's 40 days after Easter, and it was on the 40th day that Jesus uh, was ascended to the right hand of the Father. And this is a big day for us, uh, some, in some of our churches uh, on Sunday will be celebrating Ascension Sunday. The reason it's a big deal is that Jesus went to the right hand of the Father there to rule and reign until he comes again, and he is now ruling over all the nations, and that's the reason for our uh, success in the Great Commission, is because Jesus sent us out and he is ruling over every square inch of our turf. Also, uh, when Jesus ascended into heaven, he took human flesh into heaven itself. And He, being a member of the Trinity, you could say, in a sense, He took human flesh into the Trinity, into intimate communion. It's an amazing thing that now human beings are represented at the right hand of the Father. And because of that, of course, Jesus Christ intercedes for us. He prays for us, and He has the most intimate position of all, He being the second person of the Trinity and being loved by the Father. So the ascension of Jesus Christ means a lot to us, and we continue to sing all year long. Crown Him with many crowns. Uh this morning uh as we look at 2nd Peter chapter 2 we've been studying the false teaching that's going on in uh eastern Turkey probably where Peter is probably addressing his letter to the same folks that he wrote to in 1st Peter we think uh we're not absolutely sure of that but this false teaching that's taking place we're pretty sure what it's about because Paul addresses it especially in chapters 2 and 3 and this false teaching is that there is no judgment of God, there is no second coming, there is no end of the world, there is no ultimate accountability. And uh, it's a very insidious teaching, and it has many forms through the ages, and it has a form today that's very popular uh, that sort of teaches us not to worry. You only go around once, get all the gusto you can, and there's no real active teaching or preaching in the church at large about judgment or about the second coming of Christ, and what we see is that has tremendous ethical implications. It changes society, and you can see the changes in our own moral culture over the past 50 years, some of you, or more, uh, and, and at the same rate that you've seen this sort of lessening of emphasis upon God as judge and Christ as returning and and our being accountable. What we're going to see today is that the same immorality to which this false teaching leads it comes from an immorality those who teach it uh, have a certain mindset or heart set and Peter is going to show that to us that it comes from an immoral framework and it leads toward an immoral framework as a matter of fact all heretical teaching uh, is that way it is motivated by a form of immorality. That's the point that's been made in our text today. Now, this is important to us for several reasons. First of all, to realize how dangerous false teaching is. Now, I'm not talking about, uh, you know, the secondary or certainly not the tertiary doctrines that we hold to in our different denominational groups and so on. I'm not talking about baptism or church government. I'm not even talking about uh, you, Presbyterians. I'm not even talking about a uh, doctrine-like predestination. Uh, we're talking about the, the cardinal doctrines of the faith that one must believe in order to have eternal life. And these uh, are eroded by some people in their teachings, and we'll see that this comes from a bad heart. Therefore, we're going to see how important it is for us to be able to detect false teaching and for us to be able to promote true teaching. And uh, when we, what we're going to do is spend maybe about half of our time looking at the text Maybe the next 30 minutes and then maybe 20 minutes on just how we apply this to our own lives. Well, let's look at it. It's one of our longer texts here. We're going to pick up with verse 10b and we'll read through the end of the chapter. Bold and arrogant, these men are not afraid to slander celestial beings. Yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not bring slanderous accusations against such beings in the presence of the Lord. But these men blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like brute beasts, creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed. And like beasts, they too will perish. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done. Their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in the pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, a beast without speech, who spoke with a man's voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These men are springs without water and mists driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them. For they mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity, for a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them... Not to have known the way of righteousness, then to have known it, and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit, and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. All right. False teaching, first of all, is driven by arrogance. Arrogance is arrogating to oneself or ascribing to oneself something that doesn't belong to you, it belongs to another. So being arrogant is claiming something that really is not rightfully claimed about myself. And you'll notice, first of all, in verses 10b and 11, there's a bold arrogance. These people are not only arrogant, they're bold about it. And look at what they do. They slander celestial beings. Now, this is a little remote to us. We don't talk about this much in our churches When's the last time you heard a sermon on do not slander celestial beings? This is a little obscure. But you'll find something similar in Jude. Why don't you turn over to Jude. This will be page 2049. Or maybe make it 2050, actually. Look at Jude 9. Well, I take, my, take it back. Let's go to 2049. And look at Jude 8. In the same way, these dreamers pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and then look at this phrase, and slander celestial beings. Verse 9. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, you remember that text, don't you? Did not dare to bring a slanderous accusation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these men speak abusively against whatever they do not understand, and so on. Now, this story about uh, the archangel Michael is not in your Old Testaments. Uh, It's in in a a Jewish work called The Assumption of Moses, and it's about the body of Moses after he died. And Jude makes reference to it. And his point is that Michael, the archangel, in that story did not take on the devil himself personally, but just said, the Lord will rebuke you. He committed him over to the devil. I'm sorry, committed him over to the Lord to be rebuked. Now, if you go back to Second Peter, you get a, another obscure reference to an old, a non-Old Testament event in the minds of the Jewish people. So he's referring to a popular story, not so popular to us, but popular to others. And here you have a story that's in a pseudepigraphic book called 1 Enoch. I'm sure you do your devotions in 1 Enoch. But there's a similar story in 1 Enoch, and you'll find references like this in the pseudepigraphic works, the intertestamental works. But uh, this is what makes 2 Peter and Jude a little weird, to be truthful. And it's one reason that, as I mentioned to you last time, in the early church, some people weren't quite sure it belonged in the canon because it was referring to stories from non-canonical books, non-Old Testament books. So it's, it's a rare exception you get in these two books. But here he's basically saying that in Jewish tradition, human beings do not slander celestial beings. We, uh, Even the angels don't do that. They just commend a fallen angel to the Lord for his judgment. And frankly, this is... This is one reason I have a little trouble with some of the sort of Pentecostal uh, approaches to dealing with uh, demonism in just talking to all these demons it's almost as though you're praying to them. And uh, in some prayers, people will be praying to the Lord and then all of a sudden they start talking to the devil in their prayers. I don't know if you've noticed this or maybe I, hope, I don't know if you've done it, uh, but that makes me a little... Uneasy when I look at this text and I see that even even angels who are stronger than we don't slander celestial beings. They just commend them over to the Lord. And as the old story in the assumption of Moses goes, the Lord rebuke you. Uh, so we just that's the reason I've said to you before, if when I get involved in exercising demons, I'm just gonna say, Help me, Jesus, because <laughs> I don't have anything to say to these celestial beings who are fallen. They're stronger and more powerful than I am and I'm not going to be boldly arrogant that I can go boss and then I'm around. They're stronger than I am, but they're not stronger than Jesus. So I'll just appeal to him. Well, you see that what Peter is saying is that when you get false teaching, there's a bold arrogance that goes with it, that I'm smarter than the Bible, that I can stand over the Bible and dice it up for you and tell you what parts of the Bible are legitimate, what parts of the Bible aren't legitimate, and What parts of the Bible were actually written by the apostle, and what parts were added by somebody else in the third century, and make up some contrived story to tell you what's real and what's not real? It's just boldly arrogant. It's doing things that angels wouldn't even do. There's a reverence that goes with sacred things, and you'll find that false teaching will fairly consistently diminish that reverence. Notice, secondly, it's an ignorant arrogance. Peter says these men blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They don't know anything about it. They're just rattling their mouths off. They really don't understand. Thirdly, notice that it's a self-destructive arrogance. He says they are like brute beasts. Now that word, brute; those words, brute beasts, literally would be the word for illogical uh, animals. Uh, it just means they're non rational beings. So it's the, it's the negative of, of rational. It's the word logos in the negative. They're non logical zoa, uh, animals or uh, beings. And then he says they're creatures of instinct. Once again, the word zoa is used there. So the word for beasts and creatures are basically the same. And the word for instinct is fusica, from which we get physical. So they're they're just creatures that are operating out of their own physical instincts, their bodies. They're using no brain. And he says these people are like animals in the sense they're not using logic and they're not using their heads. And, you know, once again, if you look at some of the Oprah Winfrey sort of religion that she's now embraced, it's basically completely illogical. I mean, have you read this thing... um, What's this real popular book? The little one, gold, little round gold book. Uh, do it? No, not that one. It's a it's a secular book. Uh, it's the secret. Yeah, the secret by Rhonda Byrne. If you if you'll just read the secret, I mean this stuff is weird. It's kind of like we have radio waves that are going out into the universe and you know, bouncing around off the planets, come back to us, we kind of get in and see. It has no basis, uh, there's no evidence for this at all. It's just sort of a, an idea that popped up. It's, it's like Disney World, and people take this stuff ser- seriously. It's a fantasy. I mean, really, she's written something that's more fantastic than anything Walt Disney ever wrote. And people just take this seriously. These people are, they're boldly arrogant, they're ignorantly arrogant, and self-destructively arrogant, because look what happens to beasts They are hunted. They are born only to be caught. That word is hunt. They are hunted and killed. That's what you do with animals. And like beasts, these two people too will be hunted and killed. In other words, they say there's no final judgment, but there's going to be one. And they will be paid back with this little play on words here in the Greek, and it comes out in the English too. They'll be paid with harm for the harm they have done. So false teaching is driven by an incredible arrogance with people who will not think systematically and logically and reverently and submissively and who will not even study the matter in the first place and who are thinking like beasts. Secondly, Peter says, false teaching is driven by sensuality. It's not just an an intellectual arrogance and ignorance. It is driven by a desire for satisfying the senses. Once again, very animalistic in that sense. No soul involved. No mind engaged. First of all, sensuality eventually becomes flagrant. Look at verse 13. He says uh, their idea of pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. So it starts with a little hint of immorality. It starts with a little hint of maybe this idea of judgment is a little overplayed. Maybe this is a human idea to scare the hell out of everybody, literally, and make them stand up straight. And maybe, and it starts with little hints. Maybe it's not quite everything the Bible cracks it up to be. And Before you know it, we're sleeping with each other in broad daylight. So these people have already gotten to the flagrant level, already in the first generation. They started with their teaching and now... When you see that there is no judgment, there is no reverence, there's no awe of God, then look what happens to our morality. Sensuality eventually becomes and It always will. Now, uh, what happens in a generally moral society is the devil will always shoot himself in the foot. He'll go too far and people go, <clears> he <throat> gads. Uh, you can see it in some of the denominations over the issue of what is proper sexual morality. There has been heresy in a lot of our churches for a long time, but boy, then finally when it comes out and it's just boldly contrary to everything that anybody knows in common sense, just by looking at human plumbing, for example, that men are supposed to marry women, it's just obvious, you know, and and it's clearly now obvious, the devil shot himself in the foot, goes too far, and people object finally. But it becomes flagrant. It always does. It's it's the camel with his nose in the tent. He's not going to stop with his nose in the tent. Secondly, sensuality is corrupt. He says they are blots and blemishes. Do you see that in verse 13? They are blots and blemishes. And if you'll compare that, if you'll turn a page to chapter 3, verse 14, you'll see he says, so then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, that would be the second coming of Christ, make every effort to be found, look at this, spotless, blameless the same words in the negative so if they are blots and blemishes you are to be unblotted and unblemished but they've become back to the text now they have become blots and blemishes reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you so they're saying oh we're gonna go the lord's supper we're gonna have feast with you and also have feast with them we're a very open crowd. We just have a party with anybody, the Christians and the non-Christians, and we'll carouse with a moral crowd and then carouse with the non-moral crowd. See, it makes no difference. Just come join us. And you see how it works. First of all, they are ceaselessly adulterous. And you will find with, it's interesting to me, around the world with all the false religions, uh, if you have time to study them, You always want to check out what are the sexual practices. And it takes you a while to figure that out. You have to have somebody who you know well of the same gender, uh, who knows that religion well, and you'll always find some weird behavior in their sexual practice. always happens. You never find a religion that's teaching falsehood who practice the same sexual morality as the Christians do. You never find it. And you won't find it also in churches Uh, who go by the name of Jesus Christ and deny core doctrines of the faith, who become so secularized that they don't even share the same religion, you'll find their sexual practice is also different. And you find it, of course, in a very notorious way here even recently in a lot of our denominations. In fact, they make a point of it. They publicly brag about their sexual immorality. Uh, You'll always find that false teaching will affect the sexual life. And this, what... Peter is showing, of course, is that their sexual immorality completely discredits their message. And I would say that's fair enough. That when you find a group who's practicing what the Bible describes as sexual immorality, just don't, don't bother to listen to their message because their message is discredited. Peter is saying, don't you see their message is discredited because their sexual practice is, is immoral. And people know this down deep in their consciences. They know that when the leaders and teachers in the church are practicing sexual immorality, that their message is discredited. When we've had our notorious cases in the church, in the news, why does the public object? The non-Christian public object? Because down deep in their consciences, they know that your message is supposed to be leading to this type of sexual immorality. And when you're not doing it, they know you're a bunch of hypocrites, whether you know it or not. So it does discredit in fact, I was talking to a, uh, or I heard from a missionary in Cuba. Those of us who went to our presbytery meeting last time heard, heard her speak. She teaches in a seminary there, and she said that the government is, uh, I mean, she was describing some of the woes in Cuba. I won't go into all that. But she said, you know, in its hostility to the Christian church, the Cuban government has hired prostitutes to seduce the pastors. Isn't that wicked? Isn't that sinister? hiring prostitutes to seduce the pastors now why would the government do that it's obvious completely discredits the message If they can get the pastors in bed with the prostitutes everybody knows their message is discredited because everybody knows down deep in their conscience that their message leads to a particular sexual morality and that's the reason that uh, we we consider very carefully the morality of people who come and preach in our pulpit And I'm sure in your churches you do the same. And I've always said that when we have someone come and preach here uh, in one of our conferences or something, it'll be a person with whom I want everyone in our our church to have a... If they had a deep friendship with them, they they would be strengthened in their life in Christ as a result of that friendship. So we just won't have anybody in our pulpit that wouldn't be a blessing to anyone in our congregation who actually knew them very well. And the same with our pastors and pastor's wives. Why? Because if you don't, the message is discredited. And if your sexual practice is not consistent with the Scriptures, your message is completely discredited. You're, you're just undermining yourself if you're not in a state of repentance in your sexual life continually. And, of course, we always have to be in a state of repentance because we sin, I think with men, it's about every nanosecond there's a sexual sin. So there has to be a continual state of repentance for your message to be, to be credible. Uh, and people have to know that you are repenting of that and other sins continually. Secondly, notice that it's sensual because it's opportunistically seductive. They seduce the unstable, he says in verse 14. Uh, With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. So you'll notice that, that these folks uh, will continually look after some, look for some crack some uh little way to get in some un- instability in the church and that's how they find their way in uh and compare this to the apostle paul for example who in second corinthians 4 says we have renounced secret and shameful ways we do not use deception nor do we distort the word of god on the contrary by setting forth the truth plainly We commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. What a statement. We don't use deceptive methods. We don't try to convince uh, your weakest people. We don't manipulate people. We don't tell partial truths. But we can commend ourselves to you in all of our lifestyle as well as our doctrines in the sight of God before His face. Is that the way you are right now this morning? Could you say that? You know, you know how long it would take you to be able to say that? About five seconds. <laughs> if you just genuinely say before the Lord, Lord, I'm coming clean today. I'm going to stop this foolishness of having my little secret life that is undermining everything I'm trying to do for Christ. I'm going to come out and be repentant and trust in the Lord and live an open life. And therefore, I have, expect to have spiritual power in my ministry. Uh, the apostle is saying these folks are opportunistically seductive. And gentlemen, when we promote the truth we are not seductive we're not deceptive we're not to be manipulative we're not to use power politics we're not to use fear tactics and what's so discouraging is when we see christian people getting involved in politics especially in the year of an election they begin to think it's okay just to use whatever methods their party uses and i don't care whether you're democrat or republican and i get i'm on both mailing lists somehow And you know what? Their letters seem to be written by the same person. (laughs) And all they do is just pull this name out and put that name in and pull this criticism out and put that criticism in. It's the same line of baloney. They caricature the opponent. They try to strike fear into everybody's bones so they'll send another $25 donation in. And it's just rubbish. And Christians are saying, well, that's not our method. We don't, we don't promote the truth of the gospel this way and we don't do our politics this way. We're to be people who are reasonable and reasonable people are very hard to get into soundbites. So it's very hard for us to communicate our message on TV. And it's very rare that you'll ever find a thoughtful spokesman who will submit to the TV soundbite way of communicating religious and deep political convictions because they're more complex than that. And Christians are people who respect other people's opinions. And to respect other people's opinions, you have to you have to get into the complexities of an argument. They're usually far more subtle than they're ever displayed on TV. Christians ought to be having a resistance to the entire way that public communications is handled on matters of conviction and matters of politics and religion. And he just says, these people, they don't care. They'll just go into weak-willed people, just like the the women that are described in Paul's letter to Timothy. They'll go in among weak-willed women, and they'll just find their way, worm their way into these homes, worm their way in, and find some way to convince somebody of their distorted reality or distorted view of reality. That's the way way false teaching works. True teaching doesn't work this way. It's straight up. It's honest. It's holistic. It's respectful. It listens to opponents. It admits its own sins. Who of us in the Christian church can speak about the uh, ills of Islam? without talking about our own poor history, in many, many ways. The church, in the name of Christ, has performed many, many wicked deeds. And to have a reasonable conversation about these things, we have to have time and humility to describe the whole picture. So Paul says we didn't use deceitful ways. And Peter didn't either. But these false teachers do. They simplify everything down to where it doesn't even make sense anymore in order to gain a hearing. Thirdly, they're expert, expertly greedy. They sure know where the bottom line is, I'll tell you that. And that's what these political messages are. They're all for the bottom line. I'm just trying to raise money, trying to get elected, trying to get my group in power and your group out of power. And they use any methods that are considered by the public politic, the body politic, any method that's considered okay. If it's legal, And generally non-offensive, I'll use it. Christians have a much higher standard than that. We respect people. We love people. We're trying to convince people that we love, not people that we're trying to win over, but people that we're trying to win over (laughs) to Jesus Christ. But these people are expertly greedy. They're an accursed breed, he says. And look at the Apostle Paul once again, if I could compare him in 1 Corinthians. He talks about how, you know, he says, I have a right as a preacher to make my living off the gospel. You know, you 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 give grain to the ox who's treading the grain and so the same way with a preacher if he's preaching the gospel you pay him out of the tithes and offerings that come in by the gospel but he says i don't do that i don't use he says i don't even exercise my freedom why because i'm concerned about you and he doesn't say this but here's what's implied behind it in your weakness you would not trust me if i earned my living off the gospel and there are some places in this world where we serve as a church. We don't earn our living off those people because they're weak. They're not mature in Christ yet. When they're mature, they'll gladly, they'll want to have their minister being paid off the tithes and offerings when they're mature. But when they're immature, they don't. And the Apostle Paul wasn't looking for himself. He was looking for the sake of others. And so he, was not, he certainly was not greedy. And he earned his own living off making tents. Compare that to these false teachers. How many of them are earning their living by making tents? How many of them would ever consider such a thing? No, they write books and make billions of dollars. That's what they do. They, there's money to be made in it. Then notice not only is sensuality flagrant eventually, and, and it is very corrupt, and it corrupts people's morals, and it is corrupt in the morals of the teachers themselves, but sensuality is actually a high-handed rebellion. Look how he puts it in verse 15. He's showing how this, this, uh, this apostasy is very intentional. He says they have left the straight way and wandered off to follow somebody else. They followed Balaam. And you remember Balaam in, in the book of Numbers when the children of Israel were coming up near the promised land. Uh, you can go there now in the hills of Moab. And they were just getting ready to cross the promised land and they were seduced. They were seduced by the Moabites. Chapter uh, 25, is it? In uh, in numbers, they were seduced by the Moabites, by the women, and Balaam was the one who inspired him. We're told later on in the text, and then remember Balak, who is the king of the Midianites. He says, "Go curse those Israelites." He says to his prophet, his pagan prophet Balaam, and he's going to pay him nicely. Balaam would do it, you know, for the money, but Balaam said. Well, It doesn't matter to me if you give me a whole palace. I can't curse these people if God doesn't let me. So somehow Balaam, dealing with the spirits and all the false gods, he knew about Jehovah that he was the god of gods. And if Jehovah doesn't allow it, Balaam can't do it. Balak, the king, tried to pay him all kinds of money. Balaam, the prophet, said, hey, in effect, he was basically saying, I'd love to. You know, I'd love to take the money. I just can't. Well, remember he was on his way and uh, he was riding his donkey and there was an angel there with a sword, and the donkey saw the angel. Balaam didn't. And the donkey bowed up, and Balaam beat the living tar out of that donkey and beat him up three times. And finally, the donkey talked back to him. (laughs) And then Balaam saw that the the angel was there, and and the, the donkey had saved his life. And here's the point. Balaam was an idiot. Yeah, you know, even a donkey knows more about God than Balaam does, and you know we always, the, uh, we preachers, you know, uh, realize that that God can use us because He used Balaam's ass, and that's what we say. You know, we're just Balaam's ass half the time. We don't know what we're doing. And if God uses us, He uses us just the way He did Balaam's ass, and uh, I guess you could say Balaam whipped his ass. Uh, <laughs> But Balaam's ass spoke back and proved himself to be a more spiritually minded being than, than Balaam was. And here's what, here's what Peter is saying. Balaam's ass has more sense than some of these people. But he says, look, these people, these false prophets have intentionally left the way. And when you find the ones, you know, whether it's Bishop Spong or Marcus Borg or some other flaming heretic... Uh, that numbers themselves among the Christian people, these people are not ignorant of what the gospel is. They have looked at it, and they have intentionally chosen another way. And it's the way of idiocy. It's the way of Balaam. And Balaam was doing it for the money. And Balaam had basically no convictions, and he had less of a, a sensitive soul than did his own ass. And Proverbs, of course, teaches us there are two paths. There's the path of righteousness and the path of wickedness. And these false teachers who are leaving the Christ-centered gospel of the scriptures are doing this very intentionally. Like Israel of old, they intentionally followed the other way. And of course, what happens? They face the destruction that comes with it. Uh, It says here that they left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness. He was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, a beast without speech, who spoke with a man's voice and restrained the prophet's madness. So it is high-handed rebellion. It is not confusion. It is not just another way to look at things. It is not an innocent little uh, alternate opinion. Uh, It is high-handed rebellion against God. God has spoken in His Word. That is His voice. And we are violating His voice when we choose false teaching. Now, thirdly and lastly, false teaching is driven by deception. It deceives people, first of all. Uh, look at this verse 17. It says, these, are, these men are springs without water. And you know, if you're in the desert and you come to a place where there's a spring, you just, you know, you're, and you're so thirsty and you can't wait to get there and you get there and it's dry. Just a huge disappointment. And Peter is saying these people offer life and they don't have it to give. They're offering freedom. They don't have it to give. They're offering meaning in life. They don't have it to give. They're offering direction and peace. They don't have it to give. There's springs without water. There's nothing there. Where's the beef? Secondly, these people entice people. They deceive them. They present a false front. The look is so promising, but nothing there. I mean, for example, in this first point, think about the health and wealth gospel. Name it and claim it. Have you ever tried that? I tried it once. (laughs) It didn't work. No, I I don't think I ever really tried it because it's so silly. But have you ever tried it? Name it and claim it. You can be wealthy too. It's a bunch of baloney. It's a spring without water. And all it does is set people up for disappointment. And I I know some people who have been miraculously healed. I also, also know a whole bunch of people who have gone to healing services. And when they weren't healed, they were shuffled out the back door so they wouldn't be noticed by the TV cameras. And their hearts were broken. It's a spring without water, some of these false teachings. They entice people. How do they entice them? They're enticing people who are escaping and then they entice them back with empty words. They mouth empty, boastful words. Look at Rhonda Byrne's book on the secret. Talk about empty words. Just foolishness. They do it by lustful appeals. They appeal to the lustful desires of sinful nature. Now certainly... Sexual immorality and sexual lusts would be numbered there. But how else do they... What other lustful desires? Well, they, lust, they lustfully... Uh, they, they, they appeal to them by the lust of anger. Anger is a lust for revenge. And false teaching will prey on anger. I remember one time speaking to Michael Cassidy, who's a missionary in Africa. And years ago, before South Africa... Uh, got itself out of our apartheid and avoided a civil war, which was amazing that God enabled them to do that. And by the way, that was largely led by Christian leaders. And that's the reason I believe they didn't have a civil war some 10 years ago. But uh, before that, there was a great fear among some of the Christians that Marxism was coming in and beginning to have tremendous power in South Africa. And uh, I said to Michael one day, I said, Michael, isn't it true? I mean, Marxism really preys on hopelessness. When people are hopeless, Marxism comes in and gives a secular hope that inspires people. He says, yes, that's true, Sandy, but he said, said, more to the point, he said, what will kill Marxism in every culture is forgiveness. Marxism preys on anger, on resentment of one culture to another. Now think about our own culture. When you listen to Louis, Louis Farrakhan, all the false teachings in Louis Farrakhan. And if you've you ever heard him speak, one time I was, I was away on a Saturday and I flipped on C-SPAN and I listened to him for two hours. And I just listened, tried to understand the man, this deep anger and resentment that's, that's spewing out the false teaching, the, the nation of Islam teaching and so on. And then you're know, even closer to home, what about uh, the, the whole... Uh, um, controversy on Jeremiah Wright. You know, uh, this past uh, six weeks, uh, our nation actually has been blessed, I think, because we've had, for the first time in my memory, either in reading uh, well-known articles or in listening to speakers, we have had a, what I'd call a psychological exposition of the race issue in America. We've had a um, legal exposition We've had an exposition based on justice and civil rights. We've had that, and of course, uh, Dr. Uh, King's uh, I Have a Dream would be one of the most famous speeches. But I don't remember that we'd ever had a public exposition of the psychological dynamics of racism like we did when Barack Obama gave us that eloquent speech a few weeks ago. That was a seminal moment, in my opinion in race relations in this country. And I think we'll look back years later and say, you know, uh, white folks especially learned something that day when Barack Obama in a peaceful and and unifying manner spoke to the issue. But as he refers to his own pastor, and of course things got heated up again this week, and as you listen to his pastor speak, you know, there's several things you can learn. I think first of all, as a a white person myself, uh, I look and say, you know what? All the sins of my fathers, because my I am an immigrant too, but my immigration goes way I'm back before the Civil War. The sins of my fathers have left a people with this kind of anger, and uh, I hope that the white folks, the Caucasians in America, will take this whole episode uh, humbly and look at themselves rather than primarily criticizing someone else's sermon someone else's viewpoint. And I think when I listen to it, I realize, first of all, this is the anger I have engendered and my fathers have engendered by my lack of sensitivity to racial issues. And the fact is that I think a good number of African Americans uh, still are feeling uh, the oppression of a dominant white group that is not allowing them ways in to the economy and not doing enough to share power and share economic Uh, resources and there's no question about it so the first thing you see and I think white America kind of had their eyes opened up you mean this is the way they talk in church yes because what has happened over the past 300 years or more is that because of the oppression of one race against another we have built a generational pool of hurt and pain and resentment And the only way to work it out is to work it out honestly in church to the best of anyone's ability. And we do the same thing in our church. We have reasons why we get angry, and we have to work it out. But here's the danger, you see. If you're the one who is angry, you must be very careful how you work it out because your anger can lead to heresy. Now, I'd have to say that the whole idea of liberation theology, which I think Dr. Wright uh, says he believes in, uh, has some truth to it. Uh, there is a sense in which oppressed minorities in various cultures need to be liberated. And in South America, especially last century, we had a lot of movement. In fact, the Roman Catholics had to deal with this, where they had a lot of liberation theology among the priests in South America from an oppressed peasantry that was being you know, put under the thumb of the, of the business class. That's anger and resentment. They're saying we need to be liberated from our oppressors. Now, there's something in the gospel, of course, that speaks to this, doesn't it? Because Moses and the Israelites were delivered from their bondage, from their enslavement, from their oppression. And the gospel delivers us from our oppressors in a real sense, a spiritual sense now and a physical sense later. But what liberation theology seeks to do is to bring the violence of the end day and the last judgment into this day and to get it all clarified while we're still sinners. And anytime you try to do that, all you're going to do is mess things up further. And now if you're the oppressed one, you're just going to simply create more violence. You have to wait on the day of judgment to get perfect judgment. Now you can get partial judgment in these days. You can preach. You can teach. You can appeal. You can even use the the methods within the law. And some would even say at times you must break the law. But you do it in a way that respects the human rights of other people. And you'll see in Jeremiah Wright's case, you can see the anger, can't you? You can see that there's a, lustful, there's a lustful expression of anger. And what it does, it draws other people who are angry. And that's the danger of it. And when you do that then, what do you do? You will find yourself shifting off the core of the gospel itself. The gospel is about Jesus Christ reconciling us to God. And the gospel is about implementing the kingdom, not with a sword, and not by oppressing other people, and not by putting other people down, and not by, not by uh, slandering other people, but by loving other people and laying down your life for them. The only way that any of this is going to be solved, either the sins of the white folks in our culture or the sins of those who have been wounded in our culture, the only answer is the gospel. The only answer is Jesus Christ, as He, as he is presented in the Scriptures. And remember, Jesus was an oppressed person. And he gave us the answer for oppression, didn't he? He laid down his life for his oppressors. And it was out of love. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And where you see this at work, you find the most powerful expressions of the gospel around the world. And I've, I've said to you before, and I'll say it again, I'm so profoundly grateful For the African-American church in this country. And I could say in a political sense, not in a truly eternal sense, but in a political sense, we'd be lost without the African-American church. For the Caucasians in this country to have oppressed another race and get by with it, that is there would be no response and there would be no consequence and there would be no gospel response to it, we'd be lost. But what you have in the gospel-centered African-American church is one of the clearest displays of the love of Jesus Christ who laid down his life for his oppressors and said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. I'm not making the African-American evangelical church out to be perfect. I'm just saying that in God's providence, they were given that opportunity and so many of them displayed it so beautifully. And is not in contrast to that gospel-centered response that we realize something's not right in the liberation theology that's being taught by so many, including the one that was on TV not too long ago. And here the apostle is saying that these false teachers appeal to the lustful desires of sinful nature. They'll either take up your pride as a white person and, and speak to your lust and tell you you can have it all, or they'll appeal to the anger of an oppressed people. They'll just appeal to whatever lustful desires you have and win their way into your heart and speak the message that your lustful desire wants to hear. And I'll tell you what another analogy is with the, the white evangelical church who wants to say that our biggest problem in this society is the gay community. I'm astonished. For 25 more or more years, 30 years, I've been dealing as a pastor with heterosexual sins up to my eyeballs. The heterosexuals are causing me all kinds of problems. I thought my problem was heterosexuals. I didn't know it was homosexuals. I very rarely have a problem with a homosexual. It's always you bunch of heterosexuals out there that are causing all kinds of troubles. And yet you go to an evangelical church and they're talking about the gay community being our problem. I'm just scratching my head saying, who are they working with? You know what they're doing? They are appealing to your lustful desires to resent another community who's changing society in the way you don't want it to change. And they're appealing to that in your own heart and getting you all riled up and you'll pay the pastor's salary and he can live in the manse and drive a nice car. It's the same thing. We all do it. We're all tempted. It doesn't matter what church you're in. You're tempted to appeal to lustful desires. And if they're closely connected to a spiritual or theological issue, you can get by with it a lot easier. And that's what happens all over the place. Those are the the worst teachings, the ones that appear to be so spiritual. And the ones that appeal to Jesus Christ by name and appeal to the Scripture by chapter and verse but are taken out of context. It's subtle business. But Peter's addressing it here. The motive is to appeal to lustful desires. And then notice thirdly, it enslaves people. The irony of this teaching is it doesn't set anybody free from anything. And when, when, we, when we excoriate the gay community... Does that set me free from my heterosexual sin? No, it just excuses me one more week rather than talking about my sins, my lusts, my problems, and yours. Now, some of you are gay, I suppose, in a, in a room this size. And if you're gay, fine, you deal with your gay sins. But most of you are, are non-gay people. That means you frown a lot. No, I'm just teasing. You, you're heterosexuals. Now, let's, let's deal with our sins. And I would say this the same way. If you're, you know, if you're in an oppre, among an oppressed people, what you've got to deal with as pastor is deal with their, what they're dealing with, their sins. Rather than talking about the sins of someone who's not there, let's talk about the sins of people who are there. And what you find with false teachers, they'll talk about somebody else's sins instead of the people who are with them. It's very enticing, and it's a false promise. They promise them freedom. We're going we're gonna to liberate you and we're going we're to bring this country back to America. They're not going to do that because they're not talking to people about how they can bring it back to America. You know what, how to bring this country, bring America back to God? Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. People right here, let's do that. All of us right here, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you can bring America back to Jesus. Instead of talking about all those people out there who aren't even in this room and aren't going to listen to our tapes. It's amazing what false teaching does. It preys on people and doesn't deliver what it promises to deliver. It's false promises. And then what do you do? You make them worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. He says in verses 20 through 22. Now, what happens is with these false teachers, they take people away from the gospel. And this may be difficult for those of you who are really uh, predestinarians. But if it is, just realize that whatever doctrine of predestination you had, it wasn't worked out yet. Because here Peter is talking about people who come into the church and profess their faith in Christ, and then they wander away. He says they're worse off now than they were at the beginning. They've been hardened. And if you turn, we don't have time, but if you turn to Hebrews 6, you'll see the author there says, what hope is there for a person who's been enlightened by the Holy Spirit that has been among the community of people and received some of the benefits of the Spirit? They, They weren't regenerated, obviously, because if they're regenerated, they will not turn away ultimately. But they can be in the church and profess to be Christians. They can walk down the aisle and get baptized in the Baptist church. Or in the Presbyterian church, they can wear a coat and tie, which I think is the equivalent. (laughs) Whatever they do, they they can identify in whatever way it takes to identify with that church. And that doesn't mean they're converted. But when they do that and turn away, they're worse off than they were before. And so if we do not handle false teaching in our own day, what we're doing is... We are allowing people to get into a worse state than they were before you ever led them to a profession of faith in the first place. Now, so what? We've got five minutes, which is 15 minutes less than I'd planned. First of all, don't be an idiot. Consider the source. <laughs> Consider the source of the person. If, if the teacher is an angry person, then you should expect they will appeal to your anger. If they're a sexually immoral moral person, you can expect they'll appeal to your sexual lust. They'll give way to wherever their own sins are. Consider the source. Secondly, become a truth seeker yourself. This is the way that you guard yourself against false teaching of all sorts. Become a truth seeker, which means, first of all, you've got to be a teachable person. You know, when Elisha was first called, he was just a servant to Elijah. And he basically helped him wash his hands and he did Elijah's laundry that's basically what it amounted to and he did that for years before he became the great prophet elisha he was a prophet in training be a prophet in training all your life be a prophet in training be mentored and taught and coached by by men that you respect get into their circle ask if you can have lunch with them once a month do something to get taught and trained and mentored by people that you respect be a teachable person when apollos the great orator was preaching in the early church he was taken aside by Priscilla and Aquila to be taught the gospel more accurately. And he was a great speaker who knew that he needed to learn the gospel more accurately. So humility to be teachable is absolutely necessary to be a truth seeker. And if you're a Sunday school teacher right now, it's harder for you. Because you're speaking publicly. And so if you learn something, you have to go back and say, you know that thing I said two weeks ago, I'm not quite sure that was, that was the best way to say it. Or maybe I was wrong last month when I said this. It's hard to do. So if you're a public teacher, it requires even more teachability. We must be disciplined in our sexual lives, our financial lives. We've got to be teachable and disciplined. So to be a teacher, there has to be a disciplined life. Thirdly, we've got to be a growing people. The way to establish the truth in your life is to put it in your life in practice. That's the reason that when Peter... Was speaking to this point, he says in chapter 1, verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. And then you know how he added on. And to goodness, knowledge, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. For, he says, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive. So you take the teachings of the gospel and work them into your life so that you have a lifestyle change, not just a bigger head. That's how you actually seek the truth as you apply it in your life and then you can hang on to it because it's incarnated in the way you live your life. Then the third major point, uh, besides considering the source and become a truth seeker, is become a truth teller. First of all, be biblically informed. You know The best antidote to a counterfeit is the real thing. In the old days, before counterfeiting became so sophisticated, uh, I heard of a teller who was asked one time at the bank, how do you know when you're hitting a counterfeit? And she said, well, I've counted so many dollars. When I hit a counterfeit, boom, I just feel it immediately. It's the same way with truth. You just deal with truth so much that when you hit heresy, you know it. Something's not right. Sometimes you can see it in the spirit of the person who's communicating it. Sometimes you can see it, you can hear it in some shade of Reality that's not quite in accord with the scriptures because you've dealt with the scriptures. You're biblically informed. Secondly, be boldly humble. <laughs> you say, I didn't know those went together. Yeah, they do. Paul was a humble man, but he said, we are confident, we are bold, he says. But the difference is that rather than being bold about our own arrogance, we're bold in Jesus Christ. When he has revealed himself in the scriptures to us and we, rather than being brute beasts, actually use our minds and use our souls and we are representing him clearly on the simple cardinal truths of the scriptures, we're boldly humble and humbly bold. So we don't, we don't solve this problem by being Casper milk toast, but we're bold in the Lord, not in ourselves. There's a difference. And you know what I'm talking about. Thirdly, we're other motivated, others motivated. Paul says, we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So if Jesus came and gave his life as a sacrifice for others, if he came not to be served but to serve, we are to be the same way. Jesus said, I've washed your feet, now follow my example. And if we are seeking to advance the welfare of other people, you will find that you will be delivered from false teaching. False teaching always undermines the welfare of other people. Now, you may appeal to them, and they may, they may have a little unwritten agreement with you. You preach this kind of stuff to us, and we'll keep paying your, your wage, or you keep doing this, we'll keep you as our Sunday school teacher. So you can, you can have this short-term sense of welfare, but I'm talking about their eternal welfare. If you're seeking their eternal welfare, you'll guard your heart against false teaching. And lastly, God-centered. If you want to be a truth-teller... Everything you're talking about will exalt Jesus Christ, not you, not the people you're talking to. It will exalt Him. And all false teaching ultimately brings down Christ from His throne niche by niche by niche until He's always all, all the way off the throne in their teaching. That's what Peter is exercised about. That's what I'm exercised about. And I hope you're exercised about it as you leave the room today. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the truth of the gospel. We pray that You'll help us to be more knowledgeable of it day after day, week after week, and year after year, that we may be those who know the Lord, continually seeking truth, continually proclaiming the truth wherever we are in whatever realm You've given us. And give us, Lord, that humility and that boldness to speak wherever You've put us. And God, help us in our day when we so easily distort the gospel to suit our own comfort and convenience. Please forgive us and help us today even in a political campaign, even in a city with all of its needs, even with racial strife. God, help us to listen to one another in the gospel and to seek your glory over our whole community in a way that will cause all of us to humble ourselves at the throne of Jesus and lift up your name now and forevermore. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.